Hey everybody, welcome to the Good Lion Podcast. I am Aaron Salvato. And I am Brian Higgins. And we are here to talk about Jesus and theology, and specifically right now, tough questions, tough theological questions that are raised by our COVID-19 situation and crisis. Really glad you guys are here with us. And uh, Brian, why don't you let us uh, in on what we talked about last episode? Just give us a little recap. So generally, we felt that before the month of March, the world was just too happy and cheery (laughs) and that our conversations were too lighthearted and not serious enough. Right. So we decided that we were going to respond to the chaos of the world and we were going to talk about some of the tough questions that have come out of the COVID-19 global pandemic. So we started with the idea, is this God judging a specific group of people? We said no, because that doesn't seem to be what the Bible shows us about how God works. We continued on from there to talk about, so what does all of this kind of show us about God's wrath? And we spent the majority of last episode talking about this idea of covenantal justice, Hmm. this idea that... What God is really trying to do in the world is bring about his perfect covenant with people. Yeah. And when people have violated or strayed from that covenant or not taken it seriously enough, God's wrath presents itself to try to protect the world from blowing the covenant, basically. (laughs) Yeah. That when there's, when there's moments where Israel might do something to totally turn things off the rails so often people, when they preach through the Old Testament, they say, no Israel, no Jesus, and no Jesus, no salvation. And so God does what he needs to do to make sure that his salvation plan continues onward. So he protects Israel from themselves. He protects the world from itself. Mm. And so we see all of these examples of wrath that aren't just God saying, you know what? I feel kind of angry today. Who am I going to take it out on? (laughs) But rather, I have this plan that needs to happen. And if anyone's going to get in the way of that plan, I need to actively get in the way of them. Yeah, that's a good summary. It was kind of us trying to answer that question of can wrath be redemptive? And, you know, I personally have a tendency to view wrath as something where, oh, man, I don't like that. that. Oh, I don't like these violent images in the Bible. But it's actually really comforting to know if we view it from this lens of, well, actually, God was fighting against the forces of evil for humanity, like for me, for you, for our future Mm -hmm. children. Like God uh, was fighting for his redemptive plan. And it is violent and messy at times, but there's always a purpose. And so I think today what we want to shift to is we want to start talking about the question of, you know, wrath. What does it look like today in our current situation in this COVID-19 world, you know, what does it actually look like for God's wrath to impact the world? Is that something we're currently experiencing? Yeah. A lot of our conversation in the last episode was very Old Testament focused. Mm, And if we're honest with ourselves, that's where we expect God's wrath to be. Mm. We're kind of used to the idea that God needs to wipe out some people or he needs to conquer some nations or Mm. he needs to do something that we look at and say, yeah, that's that's what I think of when I think of wrath. But we're not used to tracing the concept of God's wrath through the New Testament. And we're definitely not used to tracing that concept all the way through to today. Mm. So I think it's really important that we don't just let this conversation end with 
how can we make ourselves feel better about the Old Testament passages where wrath happens? I know that that's not what you were doing, no. and that's not what I was trying to do. But we're, we're trying to contextualize it and help people to understand it in the context yeah. of the story of Scripture. Yeah, but it can feel like we're it can trying feel to minimize. Right. Yeah, we're yeah. trying to just do away with all that and say, oh yeah, that was that other thing at that other time. Right. So in this episode, we really want to talk about today. How does God's wrath continue to work throughout Scripture? And what does that mean for us here in our moment? So Aaron, let me put the question to you just bluntly. Okay. Are we saying that the Old Testament is where wrath ends and mm. that it doesn't carry over into the New Testament? So no, I wouldn't say that at all. I think that in the Old Testament, when we are viewing the wrath of God, we're viewing not just wrath for the sake of wrath, it's a part of covenantal justice. And then when we get to wrath today, currently, what, what are we looking at? I would say there's a couple different things. One is what I would call typical wrath, and then the other one is called final justice. So let me, let me touch on typical wrath. It's basically God's judgment that happens every day, and it manifests through different ways. For one, we have our human justice system, which is basically just secondhand wrath, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that even reminds me, not even separating it as only being a New Testament thing. I think this is something that was happening in the Old Testament as well. People yeah. would go to Moses and say, hey, we need someone to make a decision. And he was viewed as handing down decisions that were from God. Yeah. And we see similar things happening throughout the New Testament. God has kind of delegated over to humans, which has always been his goal. He's always wanted us to rule and reign over the world with him. So here he finally looks at us and says, you're going to be part of the project too. When yeah. you find moments of things that are clearly wrong. We've all generally agreed that stealing is wrong, that murder is wrong. We just know these things deep within us. And I always go back to that C.S. Lewis quote where he says, we haven't always agreed on the finer points of this, but we've generally agreed on the big principle. You know, we don't always agree on what necessarily counts as stealing or what counts as harming your neighbor, but we know that you shouldn't be harming them and you yeah. shouldn't be stealing from them. Right. And those things we instinctively know need to be punished. Right. If they don't, we're going to have a ton of people running around just stealing and killing and doing whatever with no repercussions. Yeah. I mean, and it goes back to that idea of covenantal justice again, because for God's covenant to be intact, it means people being in righteous, right relationship with him and with others. So if mm -hmm. you're stealing from somebody, you can't be in right relationship with them. If you're murdering someone, you can't be in right relationship with them because they're dead mm -hmm. and you killed them. So, you know, these justice systems are imperfect, though, because they're run by humans. So these, this idea of typical justice is imperfect because it's run by humans who are imperfect. When humans make a mistake, like they, when they execute somebody who's innocent or when a police officer shoots an unarmed person who's innocent or when a celebrity sex offender is able to hire a really, really good lawyer and get off without punishment... We're not saying, oh, well, you know, the justice system ruled that these people were innocent, so therefore they're innocent before God. Mm -hmm. No, like God knows the truth. God knows true justice in every situation. There's times where somebody guilty goes free. And so that reflects the brokenness of the human typical justice. We're trying our best to reflect God in his nature, but there's always going to be mistakes along the way. So we're not saying that 
that broken justice system represents God perfectly, and whatever happens in the justice system is therefore approved by God. It, you know, far from it, we're broken humans. Can we say the broken justice system has been redeemed by all of the Netflix content that it's created, though? <laughs> oh, man, I feel like it just uh, creates more and more issues and problems, and the rabbit hole just goes down further and further. You know how everybody right now uh, feels like they can't trust the government? You know, that's kind of the sentiment right now in Christianity is a lot of people feel like they can't trust the government. I love that you put the words right now in that sentence as if they were needed. Well, (laughs) like it's only a reason development that people are anti-government. Right now, people really don't trust the government. It's heightened. You're you're definitely right. For me, all the Netflix documentaries make me feel like I can't trust any law enforcement ever. It's just like, oh my gosh, like... (laughs) I know. They had one that I think was called the confession tapes. Yeah. Where it was just people that confessed to stuff they didn't do. I saw that. Yeah. That messed with my mind for a long time. Yeah. It's so scary. I just kept waiting for there's going to be a moment where I'm going to be sitting down with cops and I'm going to confess to killing someone. (laughs) I just I know it's coming. Like I was so worried that that would be my situation. I mean, I know so many guys who are in law enforcement and they're awesome. They're honorable guys. They're good guys. That's not what we're saying. We're just trying to point out the brokenness. It's there. There are corrupt law enforcement. There are corrupt judges. There are corrupt lawmakers and lawyers. And and so the system is definitely broken. But the reality is that God has delegated authority to us in many different areas of this world. But, you know, we fail because we're broken humans. And so when justice is actually served, when, you know, the murderer is captured and taken off the streets and put away where he can't do harm to others anymore. That's an example of God's actual justice and wrath happening. It's God punishing the evildoer to protect the innocent and to protect the humans that he loves. Yeah, this definitely isn't to say that God just puts a full stamp of approval on all human justice systems. That's the only reason we're trying to bring up some of the corruptness and the brokenness. Yeah. But we do have to acknowledge that these systems do a lot of good. Yeah. They're not perfect by any means, but they definitely bring people to justice. That's the phrase that gets used all the time when a conviction is handed down for someone that's really clearly guilty. People leave the courtroom and they exclaim, I'm so excited because justice was finally served. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that is a, a deep cry of the human heart. We want to see justice served. Nahum 1.3 says, The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. Now, this is a side note. This is something that I've thought of before. But mm-hmm. it's crazy to me that... On the one hand, we want to see justice, right? Like this story recently of uh, Ahmad Arbery, right? And, and mm-hmm. we're watching the video and it just appears, I mean, without even context, it's, it's a guy getting gunned down in the middle of the street. And there's something in me that just makes, you know, I want to see justice happen. I want to see things made right. I want to see the family of this guy taken care of. And, and, and so there's a cry for justice when we see a crime. We want to see justice. But then, you know, when it comes to the reality of what the Bible says, where it says the wages of sin is death and everyone deserves death, when I think about my life, there is a long list of sins. And maybe they might not be legal crimes, like stealing from a store, but they're crimes against God. And the Bible says that the punishment, like to, for justice to be served, I would need to die. And 
that's the crazy thing to me is sometimes we can be so desirous of justice for someone else's sin, but then we mm-hmm. forget that every single one of us, according to the Bible, is deserving of death. And I think that keeping that perspective in mind brings a humility where instead of kind of being hungry for other people's blood, it makes you realize that we, it's not saying that you ignore justice. It's not saying that you say, oh, every criminal should get off free. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. But I'm, I'm just saying that sometimes there can be a lack of humility at realizing that like we're looking at human standards, human law enforcement, human law, American law. And, but we, re, we forget that God's law is a higher law. And according mm-hmm. to that law, we've all screwed up and we all deserve just as much punishment as anyone else. Yeah. We love the idea of justice out there, but mercy in here. Yeah. You know, we always think, I even think about it with the way that people are handling quarantine even. Yeah. Mm. When people see others crowding at a beach or something Mm. like that, when they see some kind of big gathering that they weren't part of, yeah. It's easy to say, oh, those people were so dumb. They put so many other people in danger. They should have been listening to different guidelines and blah, blah, blah. It's right. it's easy to say those people who did that stuff, that's wrong. Which it could very well be true, a true statement. Which it could, totally. Yeah. But when we find the really cheap flight to Miami, <laughs> suddenly it's like maybe South Beach would be a good thing for $27 yeah. round trip. Right. And we get really excited about what we can do. But yeah. when we watch others do it, we think someone needs to go break up their fun. Someone needs to tell them that they need to stop. And it points to, I think, this bigger piece of human nature that we generally look at ourselves as the exception. Yeah. Everyone or, else or we're deserves just, the norm. Or we're just in denial about how bad we really are. Yeah, exactly. You know, so we look at it's it's the whole plank in the one eye. You know, we're Mm -hmm. we're trying to get a speck out of somebody's eye, a splinter, but we've got an actual log coming out of our eye. Uh, That's that's a Jesus analogy. If you're not a Bible person, (laughs) it's a good analogy. It's very visual. You can picture it as soon as you hear it. Yeah. Yeah. We always think that it's the other out there that's really messed up. Right. And I even I, I use this. I don't know if it's an analogy, but I use this phrasing all the time. It's always easy to see sin in other people. Yeah. I'll call it sin. I'll call it evil. I'll call it wrong. With me, I make mistakes. Mm. I misunderstood something. I Mm. misestimated. I I don't say normally in my own thinking, wow, that was sin for me. That was evil for me. I don't use (laughs) those terms. I make mistakes. All those other people are evil. Oh man, I really messed up there. Oh, yeah, that was exactly. that was a lack of judgment. I'll do better next time because yeah. I'm smarter and wiser and I just had mm-hmm. a momentary lapse of judgment. Yeah, it's always these very minimizing terms. But it's it's funny because, you know, we, we call it a mistake and yet isn't the biblical definition of sin or at least one of them mistake, missing the mark, right? Yeah, definitely. But we've spiritualized sin so much that we forget that to sin is it's a very human thing. To err, to make a mistake is very human. It's a part of that nature. And I feel like when we're always thinking of sin in this like very hyper spiritual context, it's, it's an, I don't even know what I'm saying. (laughs) Do you kind of get what I'm saying? I do. Yeah. When we think of sin in this hyper spiritual context, we miss how often it happens. Yeah. Like when people say, I remember in youth group trying to answer the question, when was the last time I sinned? (laughs) And what that meant for me was, can I identify the moment where I last did something I was embarrassed by? 
Yeah. Whereas if we asked each other the question, have you been a perfect God honoring human for the last three hours? Yeah. We would so naturally say no to that. Yeah. But if I asked you, have you sinned in the last three hours? We might actually try to analyze that time and say, no, I think I actually made it through. Like, I think I was good. And it's going back to that idea. We normally think when we hear sin, it's like this big, scary, dun, dun, dun kind of word. Yeah. But in reality, it's just being slightly off the mark from what you were perfectly designed to be. Yes. Which is we, we, by that definition, we are all sinning every day in different ways. And, you know, for me, I think the game changer in just realizing this was realizing that, you know, for a long time as a young person, I, I, I attributed sin to these physical acts, you know, like things that you were mm-hmm. actually doing, right? Like tangible things that you could see. And when I realized how often sin can happen in the mind, whether it's, you know, like a bad attitude towards your parents or, you know, I don't live with my parents anymore. So now it's a bad attitude towards my wife, you know, when she mm-hmm. says something to me and I don't do anything, I don't say anything mean to her. I don't do anything to her. But in my heart, I, I feel this, you know, this frustration and kind of agitation and even, you know, sarcasticness. Like I think of a sarcastic thought that I want to say, but I'm not going to say. And uh, yeah, that's sin. Like it's sin in the heart. And that's the root that then leads to actions later on. I think going forward from this, you know, we're talking about sin. We're talking about the evil inside us. We understand the Bible says that God's wrath is something that he uses to directly deal with sin. So if that's the case, what even is wrath? Wrath is often translated in the Bible as fierce anger or indignation or vengeance or punishment. Words that we're normally associating with these Old Testament angry God moments. Mm. A longer definition of that word might actually be a little bit more helpful. Wrath is the emotional response to perceived wrong and injustice. So like essentially the wrath of God is God's response to injustice? Yeah, it's not one specific action that he takes. It's not like, oh, if he throws a lightning bolt, that counts as wrath. But Mm. anything else is something different. When God responds to injustice or wrongdoing, that's Mm. what wrath is. Mm. You know, I think for many of us, our human understanding of wrath has kind of tainted our view of God. Like we can... Mm -hmm. We can picture God sitting there like he's a parent with a stick in his hand, kind of ready to beat the kid. And the kid is disobeying and disobeying and disobeying. And it's like that wrath is just building. Like we kind of correlate wrath with anger. So it's just building Mm -hmm. and building. God is just getting like angrier and angrier, angrier, more and more wrathful by the second until his rage boils over and he snaps. And then he gets so mad that he lashes out and starts beating the child and that's how many people view the wrath of God. It's God's anger. It's his justice. And, and we push him over the edge with our sin and he can't stand it any longer. So he snaps and then we experience the wrath of God. Yeah. And that's an image that I think a lot of us have when we think have, about have you, God's wrath. Have you honestly ever thought of it that way? Yeah, totally. Mm, I used yeah, to think too. that God's wrath was displayed in really minor things. So I remember Mm. being a kid, I think in middle school Mm. was when I had this thought. 
But I remember there was one time I was studying for a test Mm. and my mom called from another room and like asked me to do something like take out the (laughs) trash or come for dinner, whatever it was. I don't remember exactly. Right. And I don't remember what I said or did, but I remember it was kind of snarky and it (laughs) was just like, eh, whatever. Like, no, I want to do my own thing. And I took the test the next day and... (laughs) my brain felt super hazy and I felt like I wasn't able to focus that none of my studying mattered. And I remember thinking, this is God's wrath. Mm, Like I made him angry because I was mean to my mom or I had a bad attitude towards my parents and God's response was fine. Then I'm going to mess up your history exam. And it, I thought of it as being this immediate thing that it would happen really quickly and that it didn't have anything to do with my relationship with God or the course of the world. It had everything to do with you're being a little punk. So I'm going to put you in your place. Right. That was my view of God's wrath. Is that just that me? Makes, Am no. I the broken one? No, no, that that absolutely makes sense. I mean, I feel like I feel like just from I don't know, it was like there was this weird combination of gods in my mind where I had Jesus who was so ready to love me and forgive me for my sins when I fell, you know, so willing to pick me back up and get me back on the road walking with him. But then there was this idea of like God the Father who is just like disgusted with my sin and just so frustrated, so impatient, so angry and just ready to like wreck me, you know? Mm. And when I was younger, like that really was this weird separation in my mind. And I think part of the problem is honestly, when Christians and pastors and Christian movies and just all of these different Christian things, when we preach through the New Testament, and we have a detached Jesus from the Old Testament. And when we, when we preach to the Old Testament, and it's sort of like this idea of this big and powerful God who's out to destroy sin and sinners, mm-hmm. that detachment can just cause a lot of weird things in your mind. And that's why I think the hermeneutical approach is the right one, where we're saying that there is actually a thread that flows through all of Scripture. And the God in the Old Testament is the same in the New. Definitely. You know? Yeah. And I think part of why that image, I think, sticks around is because when you do the detaching, you have to figure out some way that they sort of link together. Yeah. Like you can preach them as separate, but not entirely unrelated. Right. Like I don't think any preacher is deliberately, I shouldn't say any, that's a really broad statement, but I think generally people are not trying to teach God the Father and Jesus the Son as entirely unrelated, but they wind up teaching them very separately. Yeah. And one of the things that is in common with how God's wrath really works and that image of the parent slowly getting angrier and angrier and angrier until bam, it all comes out in a moment is that it does illustrate that God is slow to anger. Hmm. And we see that throughout scripture. It's so clear that God is not angry by default. It's not where he begins and it's not even where he wants to go. And that's the big difference. It's like, it's all about picture and reality. It's all about motivation. Why is he doing Mm -hmm. something? Because that, that is the reality that many of us have experienced with our parents. Our parents are not perfect. And so 
I don't know if you had this with your parents. My parents are great. Mm-hmm. Robert, Rob and Denise Salvato, I love them. They're some of my best friends. But they weren't perfect parents, just like I'm not going to be a perfect parent. And there were times where I would say that like 99% of the time when they disciplined me, it was it was out of a place of love. It was out of a place of I want to steer my child in the right way. There were a few times here and there where it was just straight up anger, just frustration, mm-hmm. just, you know, pushing your parent to the brink where, you know, just your disrespect and your stupidity just pushed them over the edge. And and, and those were usually the moments of punishment that were a lot more harsh and even at times you know where your parent comes to you afterwards and apologizes which has happened to me my parents have apologized to me like for you know it's like they're punishing sin with sin and we don't see mm. god doing that his motivation is never just straight up anger and frustration it's always love it's always the biggest picture it's like this idea that like you know a spanking hurts you but it keeps you from running into the fire In fact, I'm going to play a clip. I found this clip on YouTube, but it was two guys using this illustration they called the stove illustration, and I thought it was really good. First step in the wrath of God is being given over to that which you want, even though it's harmful. It's like that time that I was in the kitchen. My mom's cooking some food and tells me not to touch the stove. And I'm like, but I want to touch the stove. Yeah. And she, for your own good. Don't touch the stove. Don't touch the stove, but I, but I want to. So, and this this let's set this up because this will play later. So there's a law that tells you don't touch the stove. And what rises up within you? This this this. You can't tell me what to do. You can't tell me what to do. Like what? How, How dare you? I could touch the stove if I want. Watch me. Right. And then in that moment when you say watch me, she says okay, and she lets you. Mm-hmm. Right. And then when you burn yourself, you burn yourself because your own desire. But now you have the wages of your actions on your finger because mm-hmm. it's burned. Mm-hmm. But now that you're in pain and you're hurting, the genius of the human mind oh, is that then... This was a bad idea. But who catches the blame? Mom. Mom. Why would you let me? Right? Mm-hmm. You were such a bad parent. You burned me. But what really burned you? Yeah. Your own desire that led you to not acknowledging the truth that the authority spoke over you. So this wrath, we are we are saying at least right now, is somewhat synonymous with this giving over. What do you think of that illustration? You feel like that's a good one? I do. Yeah, I think that the idea of wrath being a little bit more passive yeah. than we normally think of it is a really helpful reframing. Like it's it's not it's not God saying, "Oh, you want to touch the stove? Like I'll let you touch the stove." And then he like grabs your face and shoves it down on the hot plate and like holds it in and burns you. That's that that doesn't really ever seem to be the picture. Yeah, that that doesn't seem to be the picture and it's also not God making consequence neutral things now dangerous. Yeah. So it's not like God says, I don't like it when people get drunk Hmm. and you're drunk, which normally wouldn't do anything to you. But now I'm going to make it really painful for you. Right. Which is sometimes how we think of God's wrath of we did stuff. He just doesn't happen to like. And now he's going to take his anger out on us. Whereas we did stuff that he knows is harmful for us. And now rather than continuing to keep bailing us out of those consequences, he's going to let us feel that. Yeah, totally. So, you know, going back to that analogy you gave about being a kid and, uh, you know, you, 
you sinned, right? You, you disrespected your mom and then all of a sudden you don't ace your test and you have a foggy, hazy head. So I don't think that, you know, that was God's direct punishment against you saying, oh, you disrespected your mom, then I'm going to make you fail your test. I don't think that's how it works. I do think, though, that sometimes we can do things that are sinful and it has a direct cause and effect and God gives us over to it. So for me, like I think of, you know, if you're a student and you don't study, right, you, you're, mm-hmm. you're being told by your teacher, like, hey, you need to study for this. And you're just like, whatever, teacher, and you disrespect your teacher and then you fail to study and then you end up failing the test. That's, that's God not making you fail the test, but he's allowing you to experience the consequences of your actions. And that's where I want to touch on this idea of the cup of wrath. So there's a symbol that the Bible often uses for wrath, and it's this image of a cup, and it's filled to the brim with wrath, symbolized as wine. Brian mentioned it in another episode recently in the prophet Jeremiah, and here it is again in Psalms. Psalm 75.8 says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Yeah, and then that image most famously, I think, occurs when Jesus is praying in the garden right before he's getting ready for the crucifixion. He calls out to the Father and he says, Father, if it is possible let this cup pass from me. Yeah. Which is interesting because when you keep reading the rest of that storyline, you don't see cups showing up at any point. Yeah. There's never there's that one moment where they try to offer him some sour wine on a sponge when yeah. he is hanging on the cross, but that clearly is not what Jesus is saying. Like, oh Lord, if there's any way for me to not get that sour wine, like mm. please let that pass from me. He's talking about this bigger Old Testament image about the cup of wrath coming to him. Yeah, it's a symbol. I remember hearing a really good sermon by Tim Mackey about this. So he explains the significance of the cup of wrath as an image of God's justice. Uh, Jeremiah 25, 15 says, For thus says the Lord God of Israel to me, Take this wine cup of my fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it and they will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. So it's the Hebrew prophets and poets, and they're often describing God's wrath as metaphor. And it's one of the most common ones is this cup. You see it all throughout the Old Testament, pictured as a goblet of wine. So that's something I think we should dive into because for a lot of people, wine is not a punishment. No. Wine is how you have a nice afternoon. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And and I think that's what Tim was saying to the average person out in the world. Does wine seem like a bad punishment? Like you've angered the Lord. Your punishment is go drink some wine. People are going to be like, oh, that doesn't sound too bad. Like God gets super fun when he's angry. Apparently it almost adds to there's the image that like hell is going to be a big party. (laughs) Yeah. And so it's almost like, oh, cool. God's buying the liquor for the party. Yeah. All right. I guess if we have to. Right. But the thing is, it's understood by biblical authors that wine is something that many people find desirable. That's actually a part of this metaphor. 
Wine represents something that people want. But what happens when you have a big giant goblet of wine and you drink it down to like the very bottom? When you end up completely losing control, you lose all of your faculties and your ability to properly understand what's going on around you. Yeah. To the point where for some people, you wind up not even being able to stand or walk. Yeah. And you stumble and you fall down into your own destruction. And so that's the metaphor that the biblical authors are using. That's the picture that they're painting. God's wrath looks different than like the typical wrath of pagan gods like Thor or Zeus, you know, throwing down fireballs and lightning bolts. More often than not in the scriptures, we see wrath as this image of the cup. And it's a cup that God lets people drink. They want it, and he says, okay, if you want it, my wrath is going to be me giving it to you. He gives them what they want, and it ends up destroying them. Yeah, it's so interesting thinking about, we've used the analogy before where sin is like we all drank a cup of poison, and yet that's not at all what the biblical authors are putting out there. Like if they said sin is like a cup of apple cider vinegar, <laughs> I'd be like, oh, that's so gross. Like, I don't want to go anywhere near that. Sin is like a goblet of toothpaste. Yeah. <laughs> Just drink deep of the crest. Toothpaste like, and peanut butter mixed together. Oh, this. that, that hurt to hear. That sounds like a punishment. Like when you're a kid and you swear. Yeah. And <laughs> or like, it, it's almost like when there was always that one kid in school where everybody would take whatever was left over on their tray. Yeah. And so there'd be like a cup of like chocolate milk and mustard and salt packets and random French fry sticking out of the top of it. They'd be like, here, drink this. Like, mm. I don't know. If the Bible had presented it as, here's the cup of everybody's lunch leftovers, <laughs> it'd be like, oh man, that's a punishment. Like, I get it. I think that's the most interesting thing to me about it because it's not like God is being tricky. It's not like he is like, oh, I'm going to take their sin and I'm going to deceptively make the sin look enticing so I can trick them into killing themselves. It. It, that's already how sin is. Like the mm. enemy made sin that way. Sin is already attractive. So God is, his wrath is something very often in scripture. It's not always the case, but very often we're presented with this image where God is not cooking up some creative punishment. He's literally just letting people have what they want and then it ends up destroying them. And, you know, I think that we see that pattern of sin and its destruction it being something that we want, and then in the end, it ends up destroying us all throughout the world and life. I mean, for instance, like nobody ever wakes up and says, oh, I'm going to be a drunk. I'm going to be, that's that's what I want for my life. I want to be a drunkard. It's not that. It's, it's years of drinking a little too much and compromises and abusing alcohol beyond its healthy intention that God had for it in the world. It's abusing it. It's taking it further. It's compromise. And in the end, you know, it ends up destroying. It, it reminds me of what Paul said in Romans 1, verse 24. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lusts of their heart to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. This whole thing is just reminding me of the Kevin Malone meme from the office 
where he gets off the bus for the beach games and he says, all I want to do is lie on the beach and eat hot dogs. That's all I've ever wanted. (laughs) And it's like to do just that. I think we've all pretty much concluded that hot dogs are like the grossest, delicious meat. Yeah, it's like they're so tasty. We keep having them, but we all know that they're like super gross. It's like I have to do terrible things to you. I have to cook them a really specific way and they have to be good quality hot dogs. We, we actually had a cookout recently, me in Brooklyn, and normally she buys like really good quality hot dogs, but she got mm-hmm. like the cheaper brand. And it was like, I was so aware that I was eating a hot dog that it disgusted me. <laughs> it's like the only way I can enjoy a hot dog is if it's prepared in a way where I'm not focusing on the fact that it's a hot dog. You have to be almost tricked into eating a hot dog. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but it, it's that same idea of... If I just get what I want. Wait, I just want to touch on that really quick. It's just funny because like when you think about it, when you're eating chicken, you're eating a dead bird carcass. Uh, When you're eating a burger, it is the flesh, the, 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 it's the flesh of a cow on a piece of bread, but it's not gross. So how gross is a hot dog? If like those other things (laughs) aren't that gross. If it makes us aware of all that. Yeah. I mean, I, where Where my wife and I live out in California, if we go a little bit north from here, we can pass dairy farms. Yeah. And I've driven past those cows and I never thought, wow, I'm really hungry right now. No. This is super appetizing. Like being in the presence of cow is very unappetizing. It's like being in the presence of dead cow flesh. Oh, yeah. I'm in. If it's cooked. If it's raw, I'm kind of like, I don't know. But yeah, if it's on the grill... Anyway, sorry. Let's get back to what what were you saying? I was just saying that it reminded me of that image of if I just get what I want. Yeah. It's going to be a disaster for me. It's it's Veruca Salt. Yeah. I get whatever I want and that's why I'm a horrible person. Yeah. And it's interesting to see that that's how God's wrath is presented in this image of the cup. It's this is something you want. And this is something where if you drink too deeply of it, it's going to wind up destroying you. And like you're saying, it's not God forcing us to sin. One of the analogies that I kind of had in mind a little bit earlier was all of this was kind of reminding me of the parent that catches their kid like smoking one cigarette. Yeah. And they're like, I'm going to teach you a lesson. You're going to smoke the whole pack. And that's not really what seems to be going on here. Like God isn't saying, all right, you're sinning a little bit. I'm going to make sure you sin a lot and you feel why this is terrible. It's really just, I'm going to let you keep going on this. I'm not going to control you so much that you don't have the freedom to make a bad choice. But if you make a bad choice, you're going to feel a bad consequence. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I think we even see in the New Testament, there are verses that talk about God. We just read it in Romans, God giving people over to their sins Mm -hmm. and desires. So I have talked to many people about the pattern of sin in their life that they've struggled with. And Mm -hmm. most of the people I know who are, you know, lost in some addiction or whatever, or they end up in some horrible situation because of their sin. When you talk to them about it, when they started down that path, there was conviction the Holy Spirit convicted them and said, hey, I love you. This is not something you should be doing. You need to confess this. You need to go to people in the church that care about you and let them know what's going on. But then it was a continual, like over months or even years, sometimes just pushing against that and saying, I don't, I don't want to listen. You know, I'll still go to church. I'll still read my Bible, but I just, I want to sleep with my boyfriend or girlfriend, or I want to look at pornography or I want to do drugs or whatever. 
And so a continual pushing against God and trying to live in kind of this dual reality of I want to have one foot in Jesus and one foot in my desires. And eventually, for a lot of these people, God said, okay, I'm going to let you have your way. I'm going to stop convicting you. I'm going to let you experience fully what it's like to get what you want. And then, you know, the person who just wanted to have some fun sleeping with their boyfriend ends up with an unwanted pregnancy or in an abusive relationship with uh, a boyfriend or girlfriend that lasts for years, you know, and it, it's not of the Lord and it doesn't lead them to the Lord. I mean, there's all these different examples where I'm talking about where God gives us over. And it doesn't mean that he stopped loving us, but it means that he is allowing us to experience the fullness of our brokenness and for many of these young people that I've worked with, it's the experience of that brokenness that makes them realize their need for God to fix that brokenness. Yeah, and even if it's not life destruction the way that we might normally talk about it, a lot of times we'll jump right to the analogy of someone will sleep with their boyfriend or girlfriend. They'll engage in sex that's outside of God's design for it. And we'll jump to, and God's wrath will be, they'll get pregnant. And that may not be the case. And I know that that's not what you're saying. I'm just trying to add that yeah, extra I jumped, little point. I jumped clarity. to kind of the extreme, the which, extreme Yeah, examples. which helps illustrate the point. But even in something less extreme, you can have this idea of being given over to something other that happens much more slowly and gradually. It could just be that people cement themselves in the idea that real love and satisfaction comes from other people and yeah. not from God. And right. that may not make their life look like a failure or look like it's falling apart, but it absolutely is leading them slowly further away from the kind of life that God wanted them to have. Yeah, totally. And so, you know, I think for me, like one of the clearest examples of this is, uh, you know, when, when I co-taught um, the book of Judges with my dad at Calvary Chapel Bible College a few years ago, um, that mm -hmm. was like the deepest dive I've ever done into that book. I was reading like three or four different books on it. And uh, just one of the things that came out of that time of study was seeing the reality of, you know, the children of Israel and they are surrounded by these other wicked nations like the Philistines and the Amorites and the Amalekites. And they want to be like those nations. Like they notice that those nations have gods and those mm -hmm. gods, according to the Philistines and the Amorites and all these other people, those gods do things for them. It's like, if you worship this God, you'll have great fertility. If you worship this God, your crops will be great. You know, that that's kind of the idea. And so there was this desire from the Israelites where it's like, well, yeah, we have Yahweh, but like these other gods can do things for us. We should be worshiping these other gods. And so they gave in to idol worship they gave in to just, you know, completely giving themselves to these false gods. And over time, God's response was like, okay, I'm going to let you have what you want. And what ends up happening is they're worshiping the false gods of like the Philistines, let's say. And mm -hmm. then they get so sucked into that culture of the Philistines that all of a sudden the Philistines turn around and say, haha, now we have you. And they would capture Israel and like put them into slavery and they would, you know, destroy them from within. And that's this perfect example of what happens. It's like we worship the false gods and then God lets us have what we want. And then the false gods turn on us and they destroy us. And uh, that's always mm. been a powerful picture to me of what happens when we do worship false gods. And none of us are bowing down to little statues anymore. Like we don't do that, but we do worship the false gods of success or fame or money or sex or whatever. And when we put those things above God um, and we worship them, 
God will oftentimes like give us over and let us have what we want, but then it ends up really hurting our life and our relationship with God. Yeah, it's almost like God says you wanted to live the Philistine life. I'm going to hand you over to the complete Philistine life. And yeah. Yeah, it's it, which it looks it like freedom, to, but then it ends up being bondage. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, we wind up with an option put before us. We have two choices because there is the cup of wrath and it is going to be poured out. And so the question is on who? Hmm. And we have the option of we can drink it in ourselves. We can say, nope, this is what I want. I don't care if you tell me it's bad for me. I don't care if you try and slow me down. This is what my heart really wants, and I'm going to run after it, and I'm going to take it for myself. Or we can go back to the moment of Jesus in the garden when he said, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me, let it. But if not, so be it. Mm. And he ends up drinking the cup of God's wrath. And in doing so, he embraces all of the consequences of our evil desires. He takes on the wrath that we deserved So that now by trusting in him, we don't have to face wrath. Yeah. So it's like you're saying that a Christian isn't going to have to face wrath, right? Yeah. But then what would you say, you know, if the pushback was, you know, we just talked about that cup of wrath where even if I'm a Christian, but I just want to go out and do drugs and I'm resisting the Holy Spirit and maybe I'm doing a lot of other good Christian things, but I'm sinning. And then God gives me over to the desire. I've seen that happen with Christians. So is that not Christians experiencing wrath? Well, if we're going to go with wrath as feeling any consequence for your wrongdoing, mm-hmm. then it's definitely true that Christians are going to experience that kind of wrath. I like still wrath on sense, a micro scale. Yeah. I yeah. still sense all the time the consequences of my bad decisions. Yeah. But when we're talking about the cup of God's wrath, it has this finality to it. It has this, you have drunk from this and because of it, you're now separate from me. And that's what the Christian now gets to avoid. So looking at mm, Romans final, 5, 9, real final quick. wrath. Yeah. Mm. In Romans 5, 9, it says, we have now been justified by his blood. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Mm. So it's looking at this big picture. You've been saved by the blood of Jesus. You've been set apart. So when everything reaches its end, when wrath is distributed for the last time and there's going to be a final moment of setting things right. Yeah. We're not going to experience the consequence of our wrongdoing, which as you were bringing up earlier, the consequence of wrongdoing should be death. It should be separation from God, but Mm. that's not going to come to Christians who have let Jesus drink from the ultimate cup for us. That's good. So I think we need to talk for a minute about final judgment or final wrath. So we've been talking a lot about this idea of wrath affecting us in our individual moments of rebellion in our life. God giving us over. Like we worry, Mm -hmm. traditionally as Christians, we worry about being saved from hell, but we also need to be worried about being saved from ourselves. We can introduce hellish situations into our life by our own evil desires. But the last thing that we want to do is deny that there is judgment in the Bible. The scripture talks a lot about this idea of the day of the Lord, which is kind of this 
this thing that the prophets and the poets in the Bible are looking forward to as one day God is going to judge the world and set everything right. Yeah, and that's the big idea here that I think we need to hang on to, that this day of final judgment is everything being set right. We talked earlier about the idea that we see racism or violence or murder or sexual assault or all kinds of horrible things and something in us cries out that is wrong and something needs to be done about that. Yeah. And we get these little moments along the way of someone being arrested for a violent act, someone being put in jail for sexual assault. But right now we don't watch those things get ultimately dealt with. When one murderer gets put in jail, we don't all celebrate murder is done forever. Murder like, is over. Yeah. We did it. Like we you don't put get away, to celebrate that. You put away one, there's still a million out there. Yeah. What we really long for is the day when all of this will be completely removed from society. Yeah. So the Bible Project has a video where they talk about this same thing. They talk about where Jesus dies on the cross and rises from the dead. And it's this beautiful thing where it's, you know, Jesus is defeating sin. He's defeating death. He's defeating evil. But then there's this reality of like evil still exists in the world. Like it's not it's not completely over yet. So mm -hmm. I'm going to play. This is uh, John Collins and Tim Mackey talking about it. Let's hear what they have to say. OK, so something changed, but the power of evil is still alive and well. Right. And so the last book of the Bible, the Revelation, points to the future and final day of the Lord. It's when God's kingdom comes to confront Babylon the Great, this image of all the corrupt nations of the world. Yeah, this is it. Armageddon. Final judgment. How is Jesus going to finish off evil? Well, it's not how you'd expect. In the Revelation, the victorious Jesus is symbolized by a sacrificial bloody lamb. And then when Jesus does arrive in the end, riding his white horse to confront evil, he's bloody before the battle even starts. Pre-bloodied? That's a strange image. Yeah, it's because Jesus isn't out for our blood. Rather, he overcame with his blood when he died for his enemies. And the sword is in his mouth. It's a symbol of Jesus' authority to define good and evil and hold us accountable when he brings final justice once and for all. And so, in the meantime, the day of the Lord is an invitation to resist the culture of Babylon. And it's a promise that God will one day free our world from corruption and bring about the new things that he has in store. So it's talking about final justice, God fixing the world. And the final justice looks a lot less like God pulling out a machine gun and mowing down all the sinners out there. And it's more like God finally stepping away from a sinking ship and allowing it to sink into the ocean. Like our world is broken. Like an analogy that I've used before is it's like a ship and we as humans have broken it. Like we've drilled holes into the bottom of it and now it's sinking but God has been single-handedly keeping that ship from sinking. He's holding it up and he's created a new ship and he's trying to get as many people into that lifeboat as possible. But eventually when people continue to refuse him, when people continue to say, you know, this ship is fine, I don't need a new ship, I want to stay on the old ship, eventually he's going to let people have what they want. He's going to let them drink that cup of wrath and he's going to let go of the sinking ship and allow it to sink. And that's when the world 
is going to be consumed by the fire of its own evil. And, you know, when we talk about eschatology, when we talk about the end times and what's going to happen, the reality is, like, there's a lot of different interpretations in Christianity about what the final judgment is exactly going to be. I know people who are great people, and they believe that God is going to actually destroy planet Earth, like blow it up, burn it up in a fire, consume it, it'll completely be gone, and then God will kind of take the the ashes and then build a new heaven and new earth. I also know great people who believe that it's not going to be that intense of a destruction, but it's going to be more of a removing all of the evil from our existing planet. And instead of destroying his creation, he's going to renew his creation. He's going to make it back to what it was supposed to be going back to Eden. And you know what? No matter which view you take, like I, I take the latter view over the former, whichever view you take, though, it's essentially the same thing is happening. Essentially, God is taking the world judging evil, removing evil. And thank goodness, without Jesus, we would be removed with that removal. But because we have Jesus, we remain. All of the evil is removed from the world. The violence, the the racism, sexism, sexual assault, brokenness, greed, corruption, all of this stuff is gone. And even things like pollution, you know, uh, things that have affected our planet directly, all of that evil is removed and consumed. And what we're left with is a brand new renewed, restored creation, a new heaven and a new earth. And one of the elements that I think is important to bring up here is because some people have denied the concept of final judgment, when you affirm the concept of final judgment in Christian circles, Sometimes you watch people get really excited. Yeah. And you watch people think, yeah, you believe what's right. You think we're on the winning team. And I think we should be really careful about our excitement. Or at the very least, we should balance it with remembering this is going to be the worst thing to happen to a whole lot of people. Yeah. When we think about the evil being removed, it's going to mean destruction and separation from God yeah. for so many. So it's a real concept. We have to talk about it, mm. but we should never be talking about it with huge smiles on our faces. We can be excited for the good new thing that God is going to do, but there should also be a remembrance that this is going to be a horrible thing for a whole lot of people, but it's also justice. It's a yeah. good thing that God does. In yeah. Ezekiel 22, it says, Therefore, I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath, and I have recompensed their deeds on their own heads, says the Lord. Yeah, it's humanity getting what it wants and what it deserves at the same time. And it, you know what? I mean, it's a good thing. Like, like you were saying, it's, it's justice. It's man, like evil is finally defeated. People like Hitler are finally defeated, you know, rapists and people who abuse children. Like that's finally gone. Like no more of that. Of course, like it is a good thing that it's happening. But at the same time, I think it's important that we realize as much as God is glad that he's going to be ridding the world of all evil, it also breaks his heart to lose the people that are going to be lost with that, the, the ones that rejected him, the ones that didn't receive his true gift and his free gift, because that gift is extended to everybody, even the worst of the worst, the murderers and the rapists. Like We don't like to talk about that, but the reality is that that gift of salvation and repentance 
and renewal is extended to everyone. And I think it truly does break God's heart knowing in advance that so many are going to reject him. And, you know, we, we say this, you know, Brian and I, we, we're, we're talking about this justice and people getting what they deserve. We say this knowing fully that we, too, deserve that judgment. All of us, you know, me, mm-hmm. Brian, those of you listening, all of us are guilty. It's only by the grace of Jesus that we're able to step aboard that ship to the new world. And everyone has that invitation and opportunity. And just sadly, some won't receive it. And that's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking, but... At, at the end of the day, I, I'm so glad to know that God has fought so hard to rescue so many of us who didn't deserve it. And that gives me a lot of hope and grace. Yeah, I think that's the great silver lining in all of this. That, yeah, wrath is real. Wrath is scary. Wrath is something that was in the past, still is in the present, and will be in the future. But it's not something we have to face. Hmm. It's something that we can simply come to God with and say, I know that I deserve your wrath, but I trust that you can save me from this because I'm pledging my loyalty to Jesus. of all things is a really hopeful promise. It's Mm. the promise of a new heaven, a new earth, no more sin, and an unsinkable ship that nothing can ever possibly destroy. That's the great hope that we have as Christians, that the perfect world is on its way, and that all those things that we long for, communion with God, real lasting community with one another, and a world free from the negative consequences of our own wrong decision-making, that world that we so desperately long for, it is on its way. Yeah. As much as we long for this perfect world to come, because of our sinfulness, the only way to that world is for sinfulness to be judged. Mm. And God has offered to take that judgment on for us. Mm. So we can either stand against his perfect world and be deserving of wrath, or we can say, we know we deserve this wrath, but please take it on for us. And the great hope for all the world is that Jesus accomplished what he came here to do. He did take that wrath. He did create the perfect gateway to the perfect world we long for. He doesn't want us to experience wrath, but unfortunately, if we choose to do that, he's going to give us the dignity of our own choice. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Good Lion Podcast. If you like our show, please take a minute to give us a review on iTunes. It seriously helps so much. The more reviews we get, the more people will find us. And so if you want to help the show, please just go on iTunes and leave a quick review. We also love questions from listeners and we love to do episodes focused on questions. So if you have a question and you want us to talk about on the show, send it to our email address, which is goodlionnetwork at gmail.com. Send us a question. We'd love to talk about it on the show. The Good Lion Podcast is a production of the Calvary Global Network, and it's produced by myself, Aaron Salvato, and my co-host, Brian Higgins. 
Our show is a part of the Good Lion Podcast Network, a network of Christian podcasters that Brian and I started with our friends. Check out our website, goodlion.io, where you can find a ton of other Christ-centered, encouraging, and equipping podcasts. Our goal with this ministry is to reach people all over the world with Christ-centered content that helps them as they walk closer with Jesus. If you like what we do and you want to support us, go to goodlion.io slash support. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.